Hi, I'm Deborah Holchip, editor of Michigan Today. In this episode of Listen in Michigan, I go back 100 years to talk about then-campus architect Albert Kahn with expert Claire Zimmerman. This conversation is the closest I've been to a U of M building since the pandemic. I miss campus. Anyway, Claire is an associate professor of architectural history and theory. She teaches about mass production and architecture and the built environment, which is what Khan is all about. He's the architect behind Ford's huge River Rouge plant, the General Motors building, the Detroit Free Press, and many other massive industrial buildings in and around Metro Detroit. Here on campus, we can thank him for some of our massive industrial buildings for education. Angel Hall, the Hatcher Library, Hill Auditorium, the recently renovated Krauss Building, and several others that mm, may or may not resemble factories. Between 1903 and 1938, Kahn worked with Presidents Angel, Hutchins, and Burton to design 23 buildings and additions, significantly changing the skyline of the university at a time of tremendous growth. As a professional architect, he was most active in the early decades of the 20th century. His firm, Albert Kahn Associates, recently celebrated 125 years in business and counts about 45,000 projects. Way back when, Albert's brother Julius, a Michigan grad who also worked in the firm, engineered and patented the Kahn Method, a revolutionary technology that transformed industrial building around the globe. But even so, Kahn's fellow architects rarely celebrated him. I have to admit, I've always felt somewhat guilty that I find Khan's buildings a little, how can I say it, homely, plain, not so pretty. But after talking to Claire, I have newfound appreciation. In this case, beauty truly is in the eye of the beholder. Here's Claire. But he wasn't sort of sculpting spaces. He was thinking practically. He was making yeah. generous spaces that could be dealt with in many different ways. The point of the space is not the architect's authorship, it's what you can do with it. So I think of him as the sort of architect of the public in the sense of large populations of people, rather than the architect of, of any single elite. He certainly worked for the big businessmen, they were his clients, and he paid close attention to them. But when you think about his most substantial buildings. They are the factories. They are some of the education buildings. They are some of the office buildings. It's a very different way of doing building. I mean, his goal was, I think, broad coverage, not singularities. The pragmatic practical con often was dismissed unfairly by his more artistic peers, Claire says. If you look at buildings as works of art, it's con doesn't usually make it. But I think one could question that because buildings are so much, they have such complex functions. They are, they can be works of art, but we know the scenario too well of the beautiful building that just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so the best buildings are buildings that work really well and offer some cultural payback, as it were. The sort of emphasis on buildings as works of art is definitely a legacy of art history and of my field, architectural history. And I think it misrepresents the possible role of architecture in society, because I think that buildings actually do sort of you know, they have a very important role to play in how we conduct our lives and how we live. If you sort of divide the world into 
artworks, buildings that are artworks and buildings that are not, you kind of miss the important role they have in shaping our behaviors. So I think he goes into the camp of somebody who was very much shaping behaviors, but trying to do so with well-built, well-designed buildings. So he's really in the middle between these two ways of understanding the built environment. He didn't just design factory buildings that worked well for producing machines. He actually designed these buildings so that they worked very well for humans who were in them. It's the bottom line of the client. If we make sure that uh, the spaces are well lit and people aren't getting injured and they they have shower rooms and locker rooms and they have canteens and cafeterias and kitchens and so forth, and and health clinics, they have first aid clinics. If we make sure that these factories have all of these things and it's going to help your bottom line. I'm not, you know, that may or may not have been true, but the fact is he built those buildings with those kinds of amenities and nobody Mm -hmm. had done that before him, not to the same degree. So that seems like one of the places where he's, you know, he's working for the benefit of all of those people who are inhabiting his buildings, no matter what the motivation is or what he's told the client. So, you know, it's a, it's a small thing to hold on to in the world of the sort of progressive revolutionary, but I'm trying to explore that more. Also, I would say he put a, quite a bit of effort into trying to change the industry. So he was on a federal commission that, where they were trying to derive a uniform building code, which we didn't have in the 30s when he did that. He spent a lot of time trying to get people to take industrial architecture seriously. And he endowed a program at the University of Pennsylvania to do that. After World War II, all of those efforts were as if um, it was like they vanished. Wait, vanished? Yes, vanished. Khan experienced one of the strangest versions of guilt by association I've ever heard. Call it guilt by building type. Nobody wanted to talk about industrial architecture after World War II because of the destruction of the war itself. We had advanced so far in the conduct of those two world wars in terms of our building capacity and the buildings that were dedicated to military production were so awesome. I mean, literally awe-inspiring and even scary. And you see after 45 that the architecture world just turns its back completely on all of the developments of industrial architecture before 41, 42. I think the supposition was that, that these kinds of buildings had been responsible for um, at, were responsible for th- threatened nuclear holocaust. If you think about the period of the 40s and 50s, where two atomic bombs had been dropped by planes that were made in Nebraska in a con-built plant. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the other one in Chicago. Uh, I think the architecture community felt they had a responsibility to say, this is not what we do. We don't develop facilities for nuclear annihilation of populations. But unfortunately, I think a lot of baby got thrown out with all of that bathwater. So, and and Khan was dead by then. And so he wasn't in a position to point out that this wasn't the fault of building type. It was a, you know, a, a response to other, other yeah. things. Yeah. So poor deceased Khan. The guy who basically invented an entirely new way of architecture for the modern world, who could do something few others in his business could do, 
gets written out of history. But, you know, architects consider themselves to be cultural producers as much as anything. And they want they want to have this very high social status and academic status, I guess. And so what I find is even people who had advocated for him quite actively in the 1930s are saying in the night in the second half of the 1940s that that this that they don't want, you know, they don't want anything to do with him and they're not going to continue to talk about him at all. So so he gets dropped out of Henry Russell Hitchcock's survey of 19th and 20th century architecture. Just there are three parenthetical mentions of Khan and the book is like this thick. And George Nelson, who wrote the the monograph on Khan in 38 in the 40s is saying, um, you know, this is not what we should be doing. Between 37 and his death in 42, um, you know, what, what that firm achieved was, was practically, I mean, it was totally unprecedented. It was really um, extraordinary as a result of what was happening in the war. And it's not just the war. It's also the situation of America first and the American fascist party that Khan, you know, was, was, I think his determination to respond to the need for war munitions facilities was in part a function of being a Jewish man in Detroit in the 30s, that there was a lot of, of racism, anti-Semitism. Father Coughlin was based in Detroit. Um, you know, there, Henry Ford, of course, with his mm-hmm. awful anti-Semitic tracts. So I think that Khan threw himself and his entire firm, you know, completely into the war effort. And they built, an, you know, something we'd never seen before in terms of quantity of square footage and speed of construction and so forth. And so he became so, so closely associated with that final push of his life that I think it it uh, drove out some of his other achievements from, at least in the immediate aftermath of the war, people forgot about all the other things he had done. And then by the late 40s, they just shut the door, basically. It's so unfortunate because Khan had so much to offer his peers. He really seems to have enjoyed designing these enormous, complicated buildings, which required tons of collaboration with the client and deference to the functional needs of the people who would be using the building. I mean, Claire even says any artistic architect can build a single family home, right? But try an industrial system that covers 82 acres. That takes a specific kind of genius. I mean, this is what I think is so appealing about Khan is he actually wants to do the buildings mm-hmm. that house the most number of people. He was very much a, a sort what you would call a company man. And with industrial architecture, there was no, it's very difficult to be anything other than that because the big companies, the big, in this case, the big auto companies, let's go back to the beginning of his career, the big auto companies, they had in-house engineers and what, what you're looking for is a sort of seamless transition from the um, design of the machine to the design of the building that accommodates the machine. And the architect can't do that alone and neither can the engineer. So they really have to work closely together because those buildings, the machinery is, is part of the architecture. It's actually mm-hmm. attached. And you need the stability of the building to anchor some of the machinery, ah, which is okay. of course like shaking and, yeah. you know, so, so the level of collaboration that he had to have with Ford engineers probably set the stage for the rest of his career that, that you had this shared 
responsibility and relationship yeah. that you couldn't do it any other way. And I think he brought that to all of his commissions. He was quite opposed to modernism and the whole notion of the architect as an independent artist was just completely anathema to him. So Frank Lloyd Wright admired Kahn, but I'm not actually sure that it went the other way. <laughs> That's funny. And he did a lot, of course, with the U.S. military, and that, that would be very similar, that you have to have a chain of command, you have to have a clear delineation of responsibilities, and yeah. nobody is the prima donna. You know, this is, again, one of the things that architects like to criticize, that in the view of many architects, the architect is supposed to be a kind of independent, have a certain kind of independence, and to push back against the the sort of status quo. and. I'm not really sure where that idea comes from, but it, it's quite persistent in, in my field. And to people who believe in that, Khan is like, you know, he's like a, a tool of, of, of the capitalist. Um, and so one of the things I've been curious about in, in this book that I have now been working on for quite some time, I mean, he clearly accepted his role as the collaborator of industry and government, but within that role, in what ways did he exert his own agency as an architect or that of his firm? Uh, one day when we return to campus, we can see this for ourselves. Ugh. Anyway, Khan's building on the corner of North U and State Street, the E.H. Krauss Building for Natural Sciences, has been getting a makeover for some time now. I mean, it's still not pretty, but... That is very much like a factory of education, I think. And I, I, it can't be unintentional that it was designed to be so similar to some of the factory buildings um, in Detroit and in Dearborn and so forth. I think he imagined it having a similar role. And this is part of that idea of a, an architecture that is a system, not a building. Mm -hmm. it, you could take it as a kind of model for how you could build flexible classroom space, flexible lab space. You know, I think that was the point of his practice was to find those systems, not not mm -hmm. to really focus on individual buildings. And when he did focus on individual buildings like the Clemens Library, he's much more conventional. You know, I think he was probably the ideal architect for buildings that needed to accommodate a lot of people in relatively equal amounts of space. Education buildings, you have factories, same thing. You have a factory floor. It contains a certain number of people per foot. Office buildings, the same. You just stack it up then and put them on multiple floors. I think that that was really his metier was not so much housing, although he did do some apartment buildings, but um, work spaces that were meant to contain communal populations, not singletons, not, not mansions. The hospital, which we don't see anymore because it's been demolished, but that was an immense building. And again, a building for everybody, no matter what their social status. Mm -hmm. and, and to me, that's what's appealing about him. And that's why he doesn't, I think, get talked about so much among the architects. When the architects did talk about Khan, she says, they dismissed his style as the architecture of bureaucracy. Claire is not having it. She describes Albert Kahn as a craftsman of modernity. He created systems that could be replicated and even translated some of them to the way his firm operated. You couldn't do craft in the same way anymore. You had to now do it using machines and automated processes and mass production, stuff like that. He paid attention to you know, the, the things that would either make it or break it. 
And one of the things that would make it was um, that you finished within time and within budget. And he did that all consistently. He kept his eye on all of the different sections and kind of or, you know, made sure that they were working in time with one another, but was very much you know, the person at the front end. After he died, the firm had a few other strong characters in charge, but then gradually it became less prominent. And I think we, today it's, you know, I see Alan Cobb is, is kind of um, pulling things together again in a, in a definitive way. But I think that was what, that was one of the great skills that Khan had was the ability to just orchestrate a complex set of processes. So guess what his first building was on campus? West Hall, home of the famous engineering arch off the Diag. It was opened in 1904. And now I love that building. I think that's a wonderful building. So he and George Mason were partners and they split at about the same time that commission came into the office. Gotcha. So it's definitely a con building. And it's really one of my favorites because it has these big muscular details and it, it has historical references, but they're kind of translated into a new genre. So the cupolas on that building are actually steam vents. Oh. Um, yeah. So, and they're not, they don't use them anymore, but they used to be where the heating system ventilated out of the building. And then there's just other lo- wonderful things about that building. The the flotation tank is so cool. <laughs> so I think that's a really great building. Post-World War I, the administration tapped Khan to serve as a consulting architect on its committee of five, charged with modernizing the Ann Arbor campus. After talking to Claire, I have a new perspective on Albert Kahn's style. When I admitted to her that I thought his campus buildings were kind of ugly in a charming way, she couldn't exactly disagree. She did, however, put him in yet another fancy-sounding category. You know, and not all of them are ugly, but you, you're right. I mean, when I first came here, I, if you had told me I was going to wind up working on the architect who built Angel Hall and Hatcher Library, I would have said, there is just no way I will ever do that. You know, And here I am <laughs> many years into the project. You know, it's sort of like a post-aesthetic approach to architecture. It's that, it, it's not about aesthetics. It's about what you can do in the buildings. His contributions have not been properly recognized because if you just adapted some of these systems to contemporary technologies and needs. It's a great system. The concrete frame factory building is just an, inc- I mean, think how desirable it is now when you find it in, you know, in loft spaces and so forth. I mean, it's people, everybody wants this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why we're not building more of it. You know, it's really not that difficult to build. Yeah. There's an increasing amount of attention to this stuff. My book will eventually come out. Other books have come out. Um, so maybe there'll be a, a greater appreciation for what we could gain in the future from this manner of building. Because yeah. that's, that's always been my interest, is thinking that this stuff is not obsolete in the way that much architecture at all. is. Yeah. Hmm, post-aesthetic. The term takes on a whole new meaning after a year on lockdown. Well, thank you for listening. Find more Listen in Michigan podcasts and subscribe at michigantoday.umich.edu. Okay, till next time, I've got to go tend to my post-aesthetic hair. Stay well, and as always, go blue.